0: Lowe's knows you're the powerhouse who does it right to show your yard who's boss. We do it right, too, with innovative Craftsman string trimmers featuring Easy Start technology for simpler pull starts. And because you can swap out one attachment for another, you can get more done with just one tool. Shop now and add a new trimmer to your arsenal with a Craftsman 2-Cycle Gas String Trimmer for just $99. When it's time to take on the yard work, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 320. C store for details. U.S. only. Oh father
1: dear, I oft times hear you talk of Erin's Isle Her lofty scenes and valleys green, her mountains rude and wild
2: There were two, two beautiful ladies. They were just simple people and pure in heart. They were very brave. Two of the bravest women I ever came across, that they would face up to that, to do what they had done. It was an amazing thing.
3: And we called it, in kindness, Maya dailies. They were your mother. That's where you went if you wanted to be fed. In July 1970,
4: at a sitting of Waterford Circuit Court, the Irish Permanent Building Society applied for a decree of vacant possession for a property at 5 Arundel Lane in Waterford's inner city. The property was part of a suite of adjacent premises extending to the city's main thoroughfare at Broad Street and had been acquired for office development from the estate of former Mayor and TD, Dr Vincent White. The court order was issued against Spinster Sisters May and Deborah Daly and followed their failure to comply with a notice to quit issued by the Society in August 1969. At the hearing, Circuit Court Judge Sean McDee Fawcett rejected the sisters' contention that no deeds or title existed for the Arundel Lane portion of the property portfolio. Granting the order for vacant possession to the Irish permanent, the court allowed the sum of £6,500 for disturbance to the sisters and placed a six-month stay of execution on the order. But as the judge retired to his chambers and the protagonists dispersed, neither he nor anyone else present could possibly have known that whilst the law might have taken its course that day, it would be more than a decade before justice would follow.
1: And that's the cruel reason why I left oh,
4: The Irish Permanent was founded in 1884 under the catch-all banner of the Irish Temperance Permanent Benefit Building Society. If the name was a tongue twister, the society's original manifesto was admirably simple. It existed to help its members build their own homes. By the summer of 1970, in the wake of the court order hanging over them, the question of home was very much on the minds of May and Deborah Daly. To the sisters, the property they had six months to vacate was much more than that. Rented from their next-door neighbours in White's Medical Hall, it had been the Daly family home for almost 60 years. The children of Daniel and Margaret Daly, May and Deborah had, along with their siblings John and Anastasia, been born and raised above the ground-floor café from which the sisters earned a modest living. Shadowed as it is these days by City Square Shopping Centre, and with no more than a handful of surviving residents, it is difficult now to imagine that Arundel Square in the streets and lanes around it once housed a thriving and close-knit community. Frankie Whelan was one of that community. We first lived in uh, 50
5: High Street and then we moved across in the early 60s to number seven. There was the Halibans next door, lovely people. There was Tommy Peters. They lived next door to that. And then as you go up the road, was uh, Jimmy Elwood's had his stores. And down from that, you had the Butter Market, which was alive with activity. There was hundreds of people came to the Butter Market that everyone will remember I suppose in the town would be Johnny Wall's, that sort, often meat and there was um, Katie Nordens Katie Nordens was the milk shop and next to Katie Nordens there was the Keynes, John Keane they were kind of leading on to uh,
4: Rundle Lane Publican Johnny Aylward, who lived around the corner from the Dailies in Arundel Square takes a walk down memory lane
6: We're coming in directly opposite Supermax uh, at this minute And we're walking up Arundel Lane. You had Dr. White's on the corner. It was called the Medical Hall. (laughs) Dr. White, great character. So were the people working in the Medical Hall. Miss Healy and and Mr. Brazel. We're then coming in off of that, uh, off of Broad Street, into Arundel Lane. On the other side, you had Brennan's shop. They sold linen material. And they had had a, um, a post office attached to that shop then you had uh, the Daily Sisters where they worked and next one to that was Mr Wallace Jim Wallace, the renowned bar directly opposite that now that was Fitzgerald's and Fitzgerald's had a meat shop there and the Fitzgerald's lived over that they were the backbone of Waterford Soccer next door to that we had John Donahue's Uh, John Donahue had a bicycle shop and they lived over that next door to that was a betting shop and the next building after that was part of Fanning's
4: and part of Fanning's led out into Arundel Square. John O'Donoghue was seven years old in 1964 when his family went to live over his father's Arundel Lane bicycle shop.
7: From the minute we arrived we were welcomed by the dailies and May in particular. May was a a constant in my life but she was such a lovely woman you know, she kind of oozed this peace in her. She was a petite woman, tan skinned her hair was grey, grey, black, she wasn't very fashion conscious, she used to always wear uh, a, a bib. I, I would also play, play football with uh, Robert Lanigan, May's nephew, and uh, sometimes if it was a bad day and when, when May would be finished in the shop, she'd put up all the, the tables and chairs and cleaned the place. We'd play Cowboys and Indians in the room, the, the cafe, uh, with Robert and myself. There were some great times. Daly's Cafe was just one of several in the inner city Waterford of the
4: late 60s and early 70s. But as former Workers' Party councillor Billy McCarthy recalls, Daly's, open seven days a week from 7.30 in the morning until 7 at night, was no
2: ordinary cafe. They ran a poor man's cafe for a few pence, and I mean a few pence. People that lived in hostels or in bad accommodation, or lived was nicely known these days as street people, could go in there and be made welcome. It was a, a respite from the city. Some place to go in and sit down, that was warm. Keyside publican
4: Andy Jordan was a friend of May and Deborah's nephew, Tommy Lanigan, and as a boy often played in the
8: lane. I was very seldom ever in there, but I did know what they were doing and the service they were providing. And I remember lots of people that were in and around the place. Like one man, he was known as, as Johnny Coats used to feed the birds up at the clock. He used to use it a lot, just always see him going in and out of it. With other guys like Jamesy, e. Ryan and Nettie Manny. They could get a rasher and a sausage and an egg and Johnny Walls and go over to, to May Daley and she would cook it for them. And there'd be some sort of a minimal charge I think it was probably a penny I don't know what uh, breakfast was at that time like you know, three shillings or something like that. There was a fair bit the difference. They'd have the whole lot for a few pence. John O'Donoghue remembers a distinguished visitor
7: to the cafe and a regular customer who was heard before he was seen. The down and outs would, would come and go, but that was part of our life. We saw nothing wrong with that. These were people that needed to be looked after. And the men were very, very polite to her. There was never any uh, rowdiness or anything like that. You know, they had a, a, a great respect for her. In actual fact, I remember Pecker Dunn, and he had a, a younger man with him. They played playing the banjo. They were drinking in Wallace's pub, came out. With a lot of drink on him, playing the banjo in the lane and then going in and eating in uh, May dailies and not a bother. I remember on Sunday mornings there was one particular man, uh, his nickname was Fisher and he obviously came in on a Saturday night and stayed in the men's hostel because on Sunday morning he'd be walking up and down the lane and he had these um, horseshoes on his boots and he used to wake me about 8 o'clock. Waking up, he'd walk up and down and she'd open up at half 8 and he'd go in for his tea, by would a leg. But he used to do that religiously every Sunday morning. He used to wake me on a Sunday morning and he'd be going into Mays for his breakfast.
4: Just a few hundred yards from Arundel Lane was the St Vincent de Paul Men's Hostel in Lady Lane. Opened in 1947, the hostel provided a modest breakfast for its residents. But with the daytime exclusion order in force, many took the short walk to Daly's Cafe, as much in search of heat and company as for sustenance. And there were others for whom even a bed in the hostel was a bridge too far. Auctioneer Des Purcell did a soup run in the city in the early 70s.
9: Their circumstances were atrocious. They, most of them slept in uh, containers at the back of the Tower Hotel. And there was a few other places there were. There was, um, there was a small park uh, at the back of John Street in the manor. There's a little laneway there and a park in it. There was a shed in that. A few of them used to sleep there. And there was a few haunts around town that we knew they had. They drank the cheapest of alcohol, Uh, two of them, to my certain knowledge, drank methylated spirits, I saw them doing it. They had a very limited life expectancy because of the hardship that they were enduring, Um, uh, and they were all involved in alcohol because it was the only relief they got. These lads had nowhere to sleep and no method of getting food. By the
4: spring of 1971, the six-month stay of execution on the eviction order granted to Irish Permanent had passed. The café remained open for business, but as the Daly sisters searched in vain for suitable alternative accommodation, the Irish permanent was facing a deadline of its own. The society had been granted planning permission for a shop and office block development on the disputed site and adjoining properties. But the permission came with a construction commencement deadline, and more than a year after the signing of the court order against the Daly's, the society's patience finally ran out. On Monday, August 31, 1971, May Daly had a communication from the Sheriff's Office, informing her that she and Deborah would be evicted from Arundel Lane in the forenoon of the following Friday. With just five days to save their home, the sisters made a fateful decision. Sean Welch, then a member of Waterford Sinn Féin and of the party's Ord Corla, takes up the story. I
1: was walking in Water at the time and I remember they came to the house that I was walking in and told me uh, what was happening. Uh, that had been served with this notice to, to vacate the premises. I listened to them and uh, I, I saw that uh, they were really being kind of wronged and I called a meeting in Morford of uh, my associates in, in the Booker Party or Sinn Féin at the time and we discussed and looked into the matter and saw that there, there was a great wrong uh, being inflicted on the Daly
4: sisters and we decided to resist the eviction. Although the Dailies can hardly have known it, at the time of their first encounter with Sean Welsh, Sinn Féin nationally was having problems of its own. For much of the previous decade, the party was torn by competing and ultimately irreconcilable ideologies. Mick Dunphy was chairman of the local branch at
10: the time. Sinn Féin was a nationalist, free Ireland movement, and there were people who didn't see beyond that. There were other people, like myself, people like, say, Cahill Gould and Thomas who who saw... The party and the movement as something more than a kind of an insular nationalist type of thing about, you know, freeing Ireland, getting rid of the Brits. A lot of us were socialists, and uh, therein lay the roots of the eventual kind of big split that came uh, in in the formation of what is now called Sinn Féin, who are not Sinn Féin. Uh, They were were the provosts as advocated by the organisation styling itself the provisional Sinn Féin Brackers-Kevin Street, which was set up in 1969. But uh, it came to a head in, in, in the Ardesh in, I think it was 70. And there, there was a proposal we had put forward was that we would contest elections all over, both in the UK, here in the North. And if elected, we would participate and take our seats in this. And it was on that basis, or this was the excuse, that the Provost and Kevin Street Sinn were formed.
4: There were no immediate local defections to the newly formed Provisional Sinn Féin, and although later years would bring name changes, internal divisions and departures, in 1971 the Sinn Féin party in Waterford was distinguished by its commitment to and campaigning on a range of local social issues. Sean Kelly was Secretary and PRO of the local branch.
5: It was a period of idealism. There was a rebirth of the appetite for social justice. And in Sinn Féin at the time, we had set up in Waterford a Citizens Advice Bureau at 113 in the Key. And one of the reasons that it was set up was that the political parties that were there were part of the institutionalised past Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the like. And it was very, very difficult for ordinary people to get information. So we set up a um, Citizens Advice Bureau, and the amount of traffic that came our way was just unbelievable, and it grew and grew. It was, I suppose, based on uh, a certain degree of idealism on the basis of social justice. And there was a hell of a lot of injustice around at the time. Flats in Waterford uh, were in an unbelievable state. The landlords uh, weren't the best, to say the least. and. This situation gave rise to various organisations, such as the, there was the Watford Flat Twellers Association. There was the Housing Action Committees. There was the Resources Protection Campaign. There was the Ground Rents Campaign. Uh, the government was a fall, And there was a large degree of complacency and a degree of arrogance as well. So there was an appetite for social justice. It was a question of belief. It was a question of giving hope where there was none I think it was Mary Robinson many years later when President of Ireland, she said she was born to serve. So there was quite a large number associated with that Citizens Advice Bureau who possibly had that view of being born to serve.
4: Whether the call to service was instinctive or acquired, in the Waterford of the late 60s and early 70s, there was much to be done. Not least, as Billy McCarthy recalls, about
2: housing conditions in some of the city's private rental stock. There was real poverty here. And there was terrible housing. And people lived in, in, in flats that were rat-infested. There were landlords left to get away with anything. I can remember well going into places in O'Connell Street where were horrendous, you know, living in damn, terrible conditions. I mean, you wouldn't put pigs in them. People might look back, you know, and think, well, it wasn't that bad. Yes, it was. Yes, it was for an awful lot of people. And as then Sinn Fein
4: activist and now veteran Workers Party councillor Davy Welsh remembers, by the time the party geared up to
11: challenge the Arundel Lane eviction, it was already well primed for battle. We took a decision to, to kind of stand on the side of the ordinary working person in as many circumstances as we could find ourselves that we could work with him, you know, and try to get a resolution. And we had an awful lot of successes. Before uh, the dailies and that, we had places like uh, Costles Lane and uh, there was houses there was being derelict and people were uh, living in them houses where they were waiting for a real a reformishment. And, that, and there was an awful lot of agitation about putting people out of, um, evicting people generally. And we had the reputation of stopping nearly every eviction that was in water at the time. With just days to go to the threatened eviction, party
4: activists met to plan their response.
11: Two people were uh, instructed to run the, the, the opposition to it, and uh, they were Sean Welch and Mick Dunphy. They were the two people that was to organise the resistance, and all the members of the party then adhered to, the, to their instructions.
4: Party chairman Mick Dunphy was well motivated for the task
10: ahead. You couldn't have picked a, a more noble thing to stand up and to fight for. Two sisters, kind of good Samaritans, being bullied out of their life and what they stood for. wasn't just their life, it was all the other uh, unfortunates that they represented. To, to us, that was blatant injustice, because this is what we said we stood for. The defence of working people, and particularly the defence of the, the underprivileged, which a lot of uh, the Daily sisters' clientele were, had we not stood up for them, it would have been shame on us. We would have been hypocritical, not just generally, but to ourselves. It demanded that we take a stand, and we did.
4: And as the nature of that stand was worked out, Dunphy's colleague Sean Welsh is adamant that May and Deborah Daly remained at the heart of the decision making. They would have
1: been very much involved in everything that we were doing and were fully supportive of it. They were two great people that resisted the wrongs that we inflicted on them and were very much involved and prepared to be to be part of uh, not giving in to the the current building society and to the eviction. They were very much a part of that and would have been very well uh, kept up to date with our plans. We were actually supporting their actions. They weren't going to vacate the premises
4: and we were supporting them. As a minority left-wing party with a small membership base, PRO Sean Kelly was conscious that wider public support for the resistance would be crucial to its success.
5: You knew that If the street was filled with people and the street was blocked with people, then it wasn't going to happen. And that was the most important key to it. The word of mouth, there was no emails, there was no Twitters or blogs or anything else. And not everybody had a phone. So the word of mouth was very, very important to ensure that people were there. Lifelong political and social activist Johnny Cluno was just
4: one of many who responded to the call. Then, just twenty and a shop steward in the neighboring Dunlop factory, Cluno traces the roots of the idealism which was about to find concrete expression on the streets of his city.
12: I was one of these children of the '60s generation, really. You know, I I remember as a as a kid during the '50s just feeling the downward pressure, in terms of you know the way these people who were at are, are removed from us ran things, and you were kind of kind and of constricted, in terms of what you could do and kind of think and. In the the 60s, that began to loosen up. We felt that, you know, future generations were always going to be better than the one before. And there was another life to be lived. There was a kind of a youth culture developed and fellows would be coming back from England. They'd be bringing back books and ideas. And, um, you know, we would have been reading in magazines and various stuff about the Cuban revolution, you know, that took place in the late 50s and Guevara trying to export that sort of, you know. And and the, the idea was that, look, another world is possible.
4: And as Billy McCarthy and Andy Jordan remember, a nucleus of inner-city pubs provided a
2: forum for like-minds to meet. I, like most of my contemporaries, spent their time in left-wing pubs, putting the world to right on a Saturday afternoon. There was what was known as the Way of the Cross, T&H Eagans as it used to be. Granville Hotel was definitely uh, another gathering point. Jordan's was better known as the Kremlin. Jordan's always had a, a very... Uh, Left-wing clientele. And I suppose like a lot of people that had some kind of a political conscience, I was looking for some place to go or some place to make a commitment to.
8: It always fascinated me how many uh, left-wing intellectuals there was coming in. They all, seemed, they all seemed to come from the one area. Like At, at a period of time, like, I suppose every left-wing political party, there were some of them coming in. I would have been familiar with Sinn Féin, particularly official Chin Féin, as I would have been known back in the 60s and the early 70s. I got to know a lot of those people pretty well. And another left-wing party that would have come in at the time were the Young Socialists, Johnny Cluno and Tom Hogan and Jimmy Kelly and Ziggy Chasey. They were all sort of original members there. Bobby Gall was just one of the many young men whose blood was stirred
4: on the way of the cross. But he occasionally travelled further afield, and a chance encounter with another young idealist led to a visit to Daly's Café, which left a deep impression.
3: When I wasn't being socialist and wanting the world to change, I went to Tremor, and we all hung out in the Vic in Tremor. And I met a guy, he was younger than me, Mick Richardson, who I found to be a beautiful human being. So he used to hear me when I was drunk spouting my ideologies and he used to say to me, well, I'll go to town with you on Saturday night then and I'll experience it for myself. So I brought him to TH his students and he heard what was going on uh, with the daily situation in the Irish Parliament, and he said to me, what we'll do is, he, he said, when I come in the following Saturday, we'll go there. So he came in on the Friday night and he stayed in my house and we went there on the Saturday and we went in and... We sat down, there was a, as you went in the door, up to the left, there was a huge big wooden table and there was another one on the right. And then there was tables where two people could sit and you never saw where they were doing the grub. That came out from the back with the two ladies. There was one of them used to wear a green knitted shawl and the other lady, she used to have one of those hats with a pin through it. And that, that's me my me only memory. And the stockings were thick. And looking around, some of the poor, if you like, down and outs having their soup. I knew then the place was needed. For me, my attitude was, how could anybody, bailiff, special branch, whoever they were, take on these two? It could be like beating up Gandhi.
4: On Wednesday, September 1st, May and Deborah Daly made the short trip to Waterford Courthouse. There they made a last-minute appeal to the Sheriff Joseph Kenny. But the appeal came to nothing, the Sheriff informing the sisters that unless they vacated their home, he would be obliged to see the court order carried out. The die was apparently cast, but if the law seemed set to take its course, it would not do so without resistance.
10: How can you justify an non by simply saying, well, it's the law, it's the law, it's the law. I mean, th- there are good laws and bad laws and that it should have to come to an eviction. But even if it is the law, any law that allows that type of thing to happen without protest, that's not what we were in. It was our business and we were doing our business.
0: The Daily Sisters continues after the break. The Daily Sisters, Part 2 When
4: Sergeant Mick Johnston arrived for duty at Waterford Garda Station on the morning of Friday, September 3, 1971, he had, as usual, no idea what the day might bring but he could hardly have guessed that what lay in store would remain etched in his memory more than 40 years later. We'd come
12: on at six in the morning, but the super's office would usually open up around nine. So when I landed in that morning, I was told by the superintendent to assemble my unit and to be present for this repossession or eviction that was to take place in Arundel Lane. The sheriff's office would notify the Gardaí if they required protection for the court officers who were carrying out a court order. The guards, their only function would be the protection of the court officers who went to execute those warrants. So that was our function there that day.
4: Leaving the superintendent's office, Sergeant Johnston was not untroubled by the task
12: ahead. When I heard it first, to me it was a model I thought, because the work that we're doing the looking after the homeless and the needy in the city. It meant that the poor were going to be deprived. But in the guard of the force, when you get an order at something like this, you have to do it. You cannot refuse to obey it, although in your conscience you felt it was morally wrong what was going on that day. But at the same time, we had to carry out our duties.
4: As the sergeant briefed his unit, around the city, supporters of the Daly Sisters were rallying to the call. Sinn Féin party activist Davy Welch, telephone technician Johnny Collins, factory worker Bobby Gall, publican Andy Jordan were just four of many who made their way to Arundel Lane that morning.
11: Myself and Jimmy Giles were working in the glass factory, the building of the new glass factory at the time. You know. What happened is that a person came to the site we were working, under the instructions from Sean Magin, and it's on get down to the dailies uh, as quick as you can and we did
8: Nikki Flynn one of, my, one of my, my
10: socialist party colleagues whichever socialist party it was rang me and explained the situation to me so joined myself and Nikki headed off up to join the protest it
3: was probably my first time being really involved in something that I was actually asked would you be around and I was delighted to be asked even in a minor part. In them days, they used to call me part of Render Crowd. <laughs> they used to say to me, I wasn't in Sinn Fein, Bobby, you're in a Crowd, <laughs> which was attached. We were uh, uh, so contracted to Sinn Fein.
8: I went up there that day with some of the customers to peacefully block the eviction. That's what brought me to it. Like, I didn't have any political affiliations then or even now, but my sympathies were with the Daily Sisters. Like, I had great respect for them for what they were doing. And and that's what would have brought me there. In the gathering crowd, party organizer Sean Welch was
4: delighted, if surprised, to see a familiar face. It was Mrs. Treadgold. She was a
1: neighbour of mine from the Cork Road. She came down there. She stood the whole day. And Jordan, that with them, she with came on. She enough she bought a little light max for us to put onto us so we could stay there. She bought cups of tea for us. She was tremendous, and uh, she inspired other people. Uh, other members of the public there but she wasn't a member of the party That or with us she saw what was going on and took a terribly uh, active role she was right in the middle of it she wasn't a violent one by any means but she was a woman with, with a great sense of justice and I have great admiration
4: for her. Arriving in Arundel Lane, Davy Welsh was heartened to see that Sinn Féin PRO Sean Kelly's word-of-mouth publicity campaign had paid off.
11: In fairness, though, there was a couple of hundred people, when you look at it, that was all the way down in Broad Street, as well as the, across the, the the Arundel Lane and into Arundel Square. We needed their presence there, you know, and we needed a permanent presence outside the, the, the cafe in order to stop it being taken over by the bailiffs. And the people of Waterford reacted to that, you know. And that was a day of many, many weathers. They had extreme heat, hailstones, lashing rain, you know, and cold. But people stayed there and in the resolve made it quite clear that it was over their bodies that they'd have to get... To get at the Daily Sisters.
4: Along with Sinn Fein members and the wider public, Sean Welch recalls the presence of a particular group of men who, along with the Daily Sisters, had most to lose. Some of the old people that used to frequent the cafe, people that were kind of a bit
1: destitute or down on the rubbers, they took a very active part because they saw what was happening and,
4: and they had so much of an appreciation of the dailies, they weren't going to let this happen either. Shortly before 11 o'clock, Sergeant Johnston led his Garda unit into Arundel Lane.
12: When I got to Arundel Lane, uh, I was surprised to see the size of the protest and to see the way it was organised, placards, etc. And looking around, I could see a number of Sinn Féin men there who seemed to be taking charge of the protest. And this was the first occasion that we had a confrontation with such a large number of the public. I contacted the, the super's office, I informed him of it, and I stated at this stage that, that it was a big gathering and all that. With the sheriff and bailiff's arrival imminent, Sinn
4: Féin set about organising their resistance. John O'Donoghue, who lived across the lane from the Dailies, had a
7: unique perspective on the events of a day that endures in his memory. I had no idea of of any disputes as a child of fourteen years of age. I didn't know anything about the law. But I remember a crowd gathering, and then the political people forming in and having the um, placards put up, and they they barricading the place. And I remember being in the lane, and then the guards coming, and uh, things starting to get heavy. And there was a huge crowd out onto Broad Street. And I remember my father saying, You better go inside. And I went upstairs and I looked out and I had a, an actual bird's eye view of everything because my bedroom window looked straight in onto the lane into May Daly's windows. So I could see upstairs and downstairs. Sinn Fein party member Jim Tobin was stationed inside the Daly
4: house, emerging later to play a key role in what unfolded. He recalls his first encounter with
9: the sisters. The planning basically was um, we were going to go in early that morning and secured the premises. We went in, and that was the first time, really, I had spoken to them. Probably it wasn't a great introduction, but I never really had any dealings with them before that. They were nervous and apprehensive. Anyone would be, any woman, to find themselves in that position, you know? You know, it was really just cruelty to do what they've done to those two women, you know? Party chairman, Mick Dunphy, was
10: also inside the house. When we got the word of the eviction, The tactic we decided on was they were going to have to physically evict those people. Our last uh, stand was going to be that up the stairs, stop whoever was coming up. Uh, Now, I mean, if you get enough people coming up, of course, we couldn't really. But that's not the point. Uh, The the, the idea was to make an issue of this thing. But the last line of defence was going to be those two ladies upstairs. We were going to be the last line.
4: Below him in Arundel Lane, the anticipated midday arrival of the court officials failed to materialize. When Munster Express journalist Peary Dower left the scene at twelve thirty to file his front page report for the paper's late edition, there was still no show. Some time later, Billy McCarthy and other party members adjourned for sandwiches to Wallace's pub,
2: but their stay proved a short one. We're only just gone in the door when well, next thing there was a shout: "They're coming! <laughs> They're coming!" <laughs> And uh, we were back out, and within about a minute or two, from the Arundel Square end, the county sheriff arrived. He arrived up in front of the building, and he read out the uh, decree from the circuit court, which was game on at that stage. The response to the reading of the
4: eviction order was unusual, to say the least.
2: Led by uh, Davy Welch, we gave him uh, a version of Skibbereen. And shouted them down. <laughs> you know, everybody that knows it knows it's about eviction. <laughs> you know, which seemed very right at the time. The response of the court officials was equally emphatic. We didn't really get to finish this on because uh, the bailiff then appeared with a sledgehammer <laughs> and made a bust to try and break down the door. He was immediately attacked by uh, Jimmy Tobin who wrestled the hammer out of his hand and flung it across the street.
4: Jim Tobin's recollection of what was a turning point in the conflict is impressively modest.
9: They read out uh, the eviction notice and then they decided to have a go with the sledgehammer with the door, you know. But we weren't going to give them a second go at it, you know. So I grabbed it and that uh, actually finished the action on their part for the day. They had no implement to break down the door, so they were going nowhere.
12: Sergeant Mick Johnston was less than impressed with the sheriff's strategy. This fast rush to occupy the premises took us all by surprise. We were given no time. We were taken totally unaware when they went for the door. We didn't expect that. We expected that uh, we'd have a delay of some time and um, probably negotiations and so on like that, which usually should have happened if common sense had prevailed. And at that stage, we had to go in to protect the court officer and to free them, I brought the court officer aside and I informed him that uh, we would have to get more back up before this eviction could go ahead and that he wasn't to do anything until we were ready. The passage of time and the frailty of memory have left contrasting and
4: sometimes contradictory versions of what happened in the aftermath of the aborted storming of the Daly's home. As the standoff continued into the afternoon, Sinn Féin PRO Sean Kelly made an
5: appeal to a higher court. I think it was Mullally's Butcher Shop was across the road, and I went in and I phoned the bishop. That was uh, Bishop Russell. Uh, he took the call, told him what was going on. He was fully aware of the background of the Daily Sisters and the contribution that he had made to putting it bluntly for the homeless, the down and out, uh, for people who had nothing. And I outlined to the bishop what was happening, that the bailiffs were there, the sledgehammers were there, the sheriff was there and the guardee were there and there was quite a large number of people. And um, following the conversation I had with uh, Bishop Russell, I think I got a, a box, an orange box out of them and a megaphone from someone and announced to all and sundry that the bishop had said that this was not to go ahead. That was, uh, that was a, certainly a crossroads. The sledgehammer was no match for the bishop
4: and if the bishop chose not to come down to Arundel Lane, Billy McCarthy remembers another distinguished citizen
2: who did show up. At about three o'clock, the postman turned up and the crowd parted to let the postman in to collect the mail. <laughs> and he'd only gone out back out to his van and uh, the whole thing parted again. And I thought, maybe what's up, the postman forgot to lock the box or something like that. And here we had Tim Galvin, who was the mayor of the city, and a bit of paper in his hand. And he said, there's a stay of execution on the eviction order. John O'Donoghue vividly remembers
7: May Daly's response to the mayor's announcement. I remember the, the mayor had stepped in and that the eviction order was being withdrawn. And May came out and she had a scarf in her hand and she, she was running up and down the lane and said, thank you, Mr Mayor, thank you, Mr Mayor. I rem- that lives with me to this day, her saying, running up and down the, the lane thanking the mayor. For his part, Mick Johnston believes that whatever role was played by the
4: dignitaries, the resistance on the ground was a deciding factor. Johnston believes that one man's
12: intervention was crucial. The man that called it off was Superintendent Murta. The super got on first to the solicitor representing the bank. He in turn got on to some officials in the bank that would be responsible for bringing this case against the occupiers of this house. So. The word from, back from them was that they wanted the order executed. They wanted possession of the premises and that was it. Superintendent Murta he arrived on the scene. We spoke to a couple of the leaders there that we knew who they were and they stated that they were totally opposed to this and as far as they were concerned, it wasn't going to happen. We took cognizance of the crowd that was there and if the court officers were were to go ahead with it, there would have been bloodshed. Our job is to protect life and for the safety of the court officers and not to have a bloodbath there. Superintendent Murtha, who I consider to be a very able officer, weighed up the situation and stated that he was going to have it adjourned. The adjournment was formally confirmed sometime later in the afternoon. We got a a letter, a
11: document from the court to say that they were suspending action of the enforcement law and uh, that they would be re entering it in in a month's time where we would have legal representation at our disposal to fight the case then. So we got the legal document. That came to us and we gave it to the Daily Sisters and that kind of helped them then to ease the mind that they knew nothing was going to happen under another a little
4: court case Mick Dunphy spent the day inside the house and was with the Daly Sisters when news of the suspension came through
10: they were uh, you know relieved of course I, I mean it was easy for people like me and our own lads we were used to this you know what I mean but if, if you consider two uh, you know, elderly ladies they, they wouldn't this would have been the first time in their life they uh, you know, experienced that type of thing. but I, I don't recall them uh, uh, you know going down on their knees and kind of oh, thanks for the God that they were made of sterner stuff, I think, than that. Uh, naturally, they would have been relieved. Uh, also, with a, a kind of sense of victory for us, you know, we stood up. And they did. As far as they were concerned, they were going to be out of that place that day. And they weren't. That's victory.
4: Dunphy and fellow protest coordinator Sean Welsh believe the presence of the general public in such large numbers played a vital role on the day.
10: It worked out better on the day than we had thought, that we did actually stop it, Uh, that that, uh, we did more than just protest. We actually stopped it. There was a success temporarily, as it might have been. But, you know, it was a step in the right direction. Now, what really turned the table, of course, was the support that the public gave. You couldn't have picked a better place, which is right in the middle of Waterford. And it was the rallying around of the public that really swung
1: the day, I think. When it finally concluded, after many hours, I was on the megaphones at the public and I thanked everyone and congratulated them for preventing uh, the eviction. And it was they, their presence
4: that prevented uh, the eviction taking place. Sinn Féin PRO Sean Kelly believes
5: the eviction option was always doomed to failure. We were dealing with uncertainty. One thing was certain is that the Irish permanent had the law on their side and they had a piece of paper. And part of that piece of paper had a big sledgehammer attached to it. <laughs> and when you see a sledgehammer heading to a door, it has all sorts of connotations because the people that held that sledgehammer had failed. They had lost, simple as that. And though they could hardly have known it, in Sergeant
12: Mick Johnston, the Daly Sisters had an unlikely ally on the day. I didn't regret that the order wasn't executed because I felt that it was wrong For the bank, they had no consideration whatsoever for the poor of the city of Waterford. They had no consideration whatsoever for the work the Daly Sisters were doing. And it was a victory for them. You know, you'd often hear of guards would be annoyed when they failed in something. We failed in nothing that day. I thought that, um, that justice was done.
4: As Sergeant Johnston stood his men down and the court officials withdrew, for Billy McCarthy and his Sinn Féin colleagues, it was time to celebrate.
2: We went with some of the people that were in the crowd for a drink in Egan's. We had one point and we decided we'd go to the Kremlin, Jordans. I always remember sitting at the window bench with a few of the lads and I said, what have we done here? H- have we made a bit of room for ourselves here? Now that's just looking at it purely political, like, you know? And I think we had. There might have been a small step, but it turned out to be a hell of a big step in the end, like, you know.
4: Bobby Gall marked the occasion in another local pub, but remembers the festivities being tempered by a reminder that the war was far from over.
3: There was kind of a celebration removed when he came back to t It was like coming in after a match in Kilcone. There was a kind of a yes, we did it. And I think it was, I'm not sure whether it was done for you, or Kelly said, that's only the start of it. It will have to be done all over again. I remember that comment kind of quieting uh, the mood in teenagers.
4: Ten days later, on September 13th, a public meeting at the Granville Hotel widened the campaign support base, with a wide range of community associations joining Sinn Féin delegates on a steering committee chaired by Sean Welch. In the weeks that followed, a public petition in support of the Daily Sisters was circulated to factories and houses throughout the city. The petition attracted almost 5,000 signatures and was presented on Friday, October 1st at Waterford Circuit Court when a further one-month stay of execution was placed on the eviction order against the sisters. In addition to the signature campaign, the steering committee wrote to Irish Permanent Managing Director Edmund Farrell. The committee's letter called on Farrell to end the dispute by agreeing to provide suitable alternative accommodation for the sisters. When the letter went unanswered, Sinn Féin decided to take a more direct approach. Every
11: office that the Irish Permanent Building Society had in the country got a visit or a picket from uh, Sinn Féin. At the time, Edmund Farrell was the managing director of that and some of our members went straight through into his office and told him in uncertain certain terms that we wouldn't stand idly by and let them evict the Daily Sisters. That they, had, they have to bring that to a negotiated conclusion. We were working in a volatile situation and we had to try to take action to make sure that he understood the message quite clearly that we weren't going to give it over to the Daily Sisters premises. In the event, although the eviction order was never formally
4: rescinded, no further attempts were ever made to execute it. May and Deborah Daly remained in their home throughout the 70s, and the café was still trading in 1979 when Irish Permanent sold its interest in Arundel Lane to a local business consortium, Abbeylands Investment Limited.
11: But the dispute didn't end with the change of ownership. The Irish Permanent saw that they better get out of this situation, you know, and they passed it on to a group of local doctors and chemists in Waterford. And they attempted then to um, work against the Daily Sisters and we picketed their pharmacies and their clinics and that. And we left them in no certain terms that we meet there their determination to, to push this true as much as we messed it against uh, the Irish Permanent.
4: May Daly died in Artkeen Hospital on August 7, 1980. She lived in Arundel Lane until her final illness and was cared for by her devoted sister Deborah. A year previously, Davy Welch was elected to Waterford Corporation. In November 1980, three months after May's death, a conversation he had with the then Managing Director of Waterford Crystal indicated a possible breakthrough in the decade-old
11: dispute. We had a a Freedom of the City ceremony for Noel Griffin and during the banquet that we had in the Tower Hotel I was approached by Noel Griffin and he asked me what would settle the problem and uh, I told him exactly that it was the same terms as what we were looking for at the very beginning that uh, Deborah needed uh, a residence to live in and they needed some kind of a settlement in view of the disturbance that, that came into it. I said if you want to solve it that's the That's the formula for you.
4: Despite Noel Griffin's intervention, the records of Waterford Circuit Court show that eight months later, on July 7, 1981, Abbeylands Investment Limited, as new owners of the freehold title to 5 Arundel Lane, applied to change the title of the original eviction order to show them as plaintiffs. The court office has no record of the outcome of this application. But the 12-year-old dispute ended in May 1982, when Deborah and her brother John, who had returned from London, left Arundel Lane for the last time. Their new home was at 55 Polbury, in a house purchased for them in settlement of the dispute by Abbeylands Lands Investment Limited.
11: It was finally over when the key was given to Deborah to move into Polbury. It was over then. It took a long, long time.
4: Deborah Daly died aged 89 on December 6th 2008 and is buried with her sister May in the family plot at Ballygunner Cemetery.
2: If you're human at all, you want the good guys to win, or the small man to beat some giant. That's what them two
5: women done. That's
2: what they done.
5: People determine what justice is, and people at the end of the day determined in the case of the Daily Sisters what justice was. You're involved in
1: serving the public. When they come to us, it's the last straw. We last, the last straw they
9: had. Public opinion. When you come to eviction, will always be on the underdog, and God knows the daily's made a great underdog.
3: Forty years, forty three years down the line, I'm still trying to do today what we did then, although I'm not able to get up the hills. I was at a nurse lately and when I saw him going up Perthy Street, <laughs> I thought I was going to die. <laughs> but I marched up to the top of it.
11: The fire is still in our stomach. We may not have the stamina and our legs to do it, but certainly we'll drive to it. If we can't walk, we'll drive to it and we'll stand there.
2: The small man never wins, not never. The Daily Sisters was
4: researched
7: and produced by Jim Nolan and was made with the assistance of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland's sound and vision scheme.
0: knows you'll do it right to save on what you need to make stylish updates to your kitchen and bathroom we do it right too with savings on the delta valdosta kitchen and bath collection featuring faucets and accessories with spot shield technology so you don't have to worry about water spots and stains and for three days only all new and existing lowes credit card holders get 10 off purchases made with your lowes card do it right for less start with lowes credit offer valid 315 to 317 subject to credit approval cannot be combined with other credit offers exclusions apply us only